3: Welcome
2: to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy, And I'm Chuck Rewarding. And we have a story for you today. Now we are about to begin and you must attend. And when we get to the end of the story, you'll know more than you do now about a very wicked hobgoblin. bit of a a surprise, isn't it?
4: Yes, but here's a twist for you. We're actually not going to be talking about hobgoblins in depth today, or are we, Sarah?
2: Probably not too in depth on the hobgoblins.
4: No, we're actually going to discuss the master of wicked creatures, snow queens, little mermaids, and ugly ducklings, Hans Christian Andersen, who is best known as the father of the fairy tale, and vying for that spot, actually, with former podcast subjects, The Brothers Grimm. So we're going to
2: assume that most of you are probably fairly familiar with some of Andersen's work. Encyclopedia Britannica calls his fairy tales, quote, among the most frequently translated works in all literary history. And, I mean, you probably read them in preschool, nursery school, something like that, but they're studied at all levels, even all the way up to graduate school. They've been adapted into movies, movies and plays and songs. Some of the best known stories include The Little Mermaid, The Red Shoes, Thumbelina, The Princess and the Pea. But in addition to his famous fairy tales, Anderson wrote novels, plays, travelogues, so much material. In fact, he was often criticized for overproducing, not something
4: you usually hear about a writer. In Denmark, Andersen is considered a national hero, fulfilling a fortune teller's prophecy, no less. But outside of his home country, he's often a famous name with no background. The author of The Ugly Duckling or just that guy from the Central Park statue, but nothing really more than that. But it turns out that Andersen had a really fascinating, often unsettling, life One with amazing professional success and intense personal complications, too, which we'll go into a little bit. Appropriately enough, it all starts out a little bit like a fairy tale. And we should
2: note, too, before we get too much into it, we are going with the anglicized pronunciation of... Hans Christian Andersen. So he was born April 2nd, 1805 in Odense, Denmark, and he was the son of a shoemaker already, sounds very tale esque who read to him from the Arabian Nights. His mother was an alcoholic washerwoman with very intense superstitions that influenced Andersen a lot later in his life. Even though he had an older half-sister, she didn't live with the family anymore. And he really grew up a solitary, kind of strange child. He'd play with puppets for entertainment. He had a big imagination, but didn't know too many people.
4: And from the start, he had a lot of tragic family baggage. One of his grandfathers had gone insane. A grandmother had also been put in jail young for having too many illegitimate children. And after his father died at the young age of 34, Anderson left school. At some point, his mother, though, she was pretty worried about her strange, awkward son's success and what his future would be like. So she decided to take him to a fortune teller. The woman read his mother's cards and Anderson's coffee grounds and offered a somewhat surprising prediction. Not surprising to us now, but at the time. She said, your son will become a great man, and in honor of him, Odenza will one day be illuminated. So It reminded me a little bit of former podcast subject
2: Madame de Pompadour, who also had a sort of surprising fortune as a young girl. Very true. Uh, but pretty much on the virtue of that prediction alone, plus Anderson's own really endless self-confidence. He left Odense at age 14 for Copenhagen, and that was a pretty big journey for this young boy. It was a two-day trip by coach and ship. He had only 13 dollars to his name, which was not very much money, no education, and no trade. So what was he going to do? When he got to Copenhagen, he rented rooms and headed straight to the theater, where he was really hoping he could wheedle his way into some sort of career, an actor or a dancer. a singer. Instead, though, he had what sounds to me like the ultimate big city, like little kid in a big city kind of awkward moment. He runs into a ticket scalper outside of the theater who hands him a ticket. Anderson, being this naive boy, thinks that it's just a gift. You know, he's going to get to go to the theater for free. When he realized that he had actually entered into a business
4: transaction with this man, he flipped out, just ran away completely, didn't know what to think. But he still had a lot of confidence and that really never went away. He started targeting these famous singers and dancers at the theater because he thought that they could help him find work. Hook
2: him up somehow.
4: So he'd often undergo these really horribly embarrassing-sounding ordeals just to introduce himself. In one case, he showed up at a dancer's door and was mistaken by her maid for a beggar. And then when he was admitted anyway, he asked if he could remove his boots and use his hat as an improvised tambourine to demonstrate his dancing skills. She thought he was crazy and threw him out immediately. As he
2: probably would. In another case, he crashed the dinner party of an opera singer, and then just managed to make his way into the dining room where they all were. He sang to them, he recited poetries, he even wept in front of them. Might as well go all out, right? (laughs) Might as well, if you're going to be the upstart performer. But this time, it really worked. The singer promised him lessons. Other guests put together enough money for him to study German, which he would need to know if he was going to study opera with this man. So he had some real gumption. And I think an important thing to keep in mind was that he was not some cute street kid. I mean, that's probably what you're imagining at this point, you might have some sympathy for a cute little kid. He was tall, he was lanky, he was described in most cases as being terribly uncoordinated, almost comically uncoordinated. He had giant feet, this huge nose, tiny eyes. And for these special appearances, you know, when he was really trying to impress people, he'd break out his best outfit, which was a communion suit. He's 14 years old at this point, so it's a little bit small, and he's grown quite a bit since then.
1: Um, I mean, he must have been quite a sight. Glow with your best skin. Be confident in your skin.
0: privileges and start earning points toward your next day find a stay for any you book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true
5: happy pride from tomboy x celebrating pride in the queer community all year queer founded queer run and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women
4: But clothes aside, things got even worse when his voice broke only a few months into singing lessons. So at that point, his opera career is over, and Anderson was advised to go home and just learn a trade. In his memoirs, he recalls considering suicide over wanting to go home. Fortunately for him, though, there were other illustrious Danes around who were willing to give him a little bit of help. He'd been given Latin lessons and Danish lessons, and he'd get occasional work as a walk-on at the Royal Theater. And all the while, he lived in the storeroom of a madam's house at a reduced rate and costumed his little puppets with begged scraps of cloth. So he was
2: still keeping up that imaginative work that he had been doing all along. But many of his friends, poets, dramatists, he was even friends with the discoverer of electromagnetism, uh, helped him out in various ways like this. But his greatest benefactor ended up being Jonas Collin, who is the director of the Royal Theater. This guy obtained a stipend from the King of Denmark to send Anderson to grammar school at the age of 17. So. A lot of people have wondered how this boy, you know, the shoemaker's son, managed such an amazing rise. And writer Jens Jorensen has suggested Anderson was actually the illegitimate son of the Danish king, and that it explained how he got this... Um, this convenient connection, the stipend, even though a New Yorker article by Diana and Jeffrey Frank calls the argument, quote, improbable. It's just an interesting kind of another fairytale-esque thing to throw out yeah, there. Yeah, a
4: possibility. But either way, school was a great opportunity for him. I mean, just naturally, it's a useful pursuit for an aspiring writer.
2: Well, and it's been suggested, too, that a lot of these people helped him out because he was so enthusiastic about writing, but his His writing was so bad. You know, he just (laughs) could barely write his own language.
4: And I would imagine it'd be daunting to start school when all the other kids are 10 to 12 years old. And to add to matters, your teacher is a big bully who basically predicts, quote, that you will end your days in a madhouse.
2: Yeah, he was not a nice guy. And consequently, Anderson had grammar school nightmares for the rest of his life, even though it was certainly the... uh, the defining uh, event in his life in that it allowed him to go on to become this great writer it destroyed him in a way too, this, this constant fear of um, of performing or not being able to perform in academic ways. But after four years of instruction, Anderson did have enough of an education to return to Copenhagen, start studying Latin and Greek with a tutor, probably a more sympathetic tutor, <laughs> and enroll in the university and start composing real poetry, poetry from somebody who, who knows the language.
4: His first hit poem was published in a newspaper when he was 21, and after that, he started to get a little bit of success. His first major work came out in 1829. He followed up with a semi-autobiographical novel, or a few semi-autobiographical novels, actually, including O.T., A Danish Romance, from 1836, Only a Fiddler, from 1837, and then there were some popular plays, like an 1840 work on the evils of slavery called The Mulatto.
2: And all the while he was traveling regularly, too, producing these humorous travel logs along the way. And when you consider the danger of travel in the first half of the 19th century, I mean, we've got highwaymen, bad roads. You could just stumble upon a local uprising. It's really amazing to me that Anderson went to so many places. He visited Paris and Dresden, Rome, Naples, Malta, Constantinople, Athens, where he got to dine with the king of Greece. It's especially surprising, though, when you consider that Anderson suffered from a seemingly disabling list of phobias and fears. I mean, just to name a few, he was afraid of dogs.
4: He was also afraid of fire. He'd actually carry a rope with him for a quick escape in case one broke out. He was also afraid of rabies, maybe that, connected to the dog. <laughs> he
2: was afraid of being mistaken for dead while asleep and being buried alive. That's a really creepy one. It is creepy and um I mean nobody would want that to happen to them of course, but It is maybe a strange, all-consuming fear.
4: But perhaps the worst of all for a traveler, he was agoraphobic, and he needed somebody to accompany him across large open areas.
2: So we've got all of that to deal with, but it's in the middle of this success, this travel and his growing literary fame that Anderson decided to start writing down shorter stories for children, almost as a release from the literary scrutiny of his more serious work, like the novels and the plays and all of that. But before his first volume was published, his first volume of short stories or children's stories was published in 1835. Anderson wrote to a friend saying, quote, I have set down a few of the fairy tales I myself used to enjoy as a child and which I believe aren't well known. I have written them exactly as I would have told them to a child.
4: He told another friend, quote, I'm beginning to write some fairy tales for children. I want to win the next generation, you see. Most of the stories from his first collection were retellings, but as Anderson began writing more volumes, his own unique voice started to come out more and more. While some stories had folk roots, like The Princess and the Pea, and others had literary beginnings, for example, The Emperor's New Clothes came from a 14th century Spanish story, the retellings shared a similar style with his original tales. He'd used spoken language and idioms, for example, um, a type of Danish that was neither formal nor literary. So you might compare this to the way Mark Twain wrote, spoken English years later.
2: Yeah. And he'd also consider his audience too, that he was writing for children. He'd avoid difficult words. When he used them, he would explain them thoroughly. And the same went for hard to understand concepts. Elias Breddorf gave a good example of how Anderson made vague expressions like the whole world more understandable to kids by adding something that was very tangible and real. So the example he used was in the Snow Queen, the Queen promises a child freedom, plus the whole world and a new pair of skates. So if you're a kid, you can get behind that. A new pair of skates makes sense. It's also kind of funny, too, for the adults who are reading it, because that's the way kids are going to think. Right.
4: He also really identified a lot with his outcast heroines and heroes. Anderson was described by one of his acquaintances, for example, as a long, thin, fleshless, boneless man, wriggling and bending like a lizard with a lantern jawed, cadaverous visage. So, in a way, he could almost be the ugly duckling he by could that relate. description. <laughs> he yeah, could
2: relate for sure.
4: And then, maybe most famously, he didn't feel compelled to keep things saccharine for kids. In fact, he wrote his stories for children and adults saying that, quote, the grown-up person should be allowed to listen as well.
2: Yeah, and really the best example of this might be the red shoes, I think, where the um, heroine of the story is punished for her obsessive love of her fine red shoes. She's just a little girl, too, and in consequence has to have her feet chopped off to stop the shoes from forcing her to dance. And things really don't end there. I mean, that's, I think usually where you think the story ends. Instead, the amputated feet keep dancing independently (laughs) and bar her from church. And relief only comes when, at the end of the story, alone at home with her wooden legs and her crutches, the repentant girl sees an angel who comes and forgives her, at which point her heart bursts.
4: So, I mean, that's... An intense story. It is. I mean, it's kind of dark and disturbing when we look at it now. But, I mean, I wonder if kids process it the same way when they take it in. You know, I think I read this story or had it read to me when I was younger, and I don't remember being at all disturbed by
2: it. Well, I actually remember this
4: story or a variation
2: of it around the time the... um Kate Bush album, The Red Shoes, came out. But it was always a, a story of a trade. You know, a girl wants to be a good dancer, so she takes these shoes. It's not just this little girl who happens to really love her shoes. That takes it up a notch.
4: It does intensify it a little bit, and it's, you know, it's tragic. And some of those stories are. They have that dark element to them. But others are actually really happy, and they contain beauty and goodwill and triumph, and or they're funny, all in all, Anderson had 156 fairy tales published during his lifetime. Other texts were printed after his death, and that raised the total to 212. And he'd write many of these stories really quickly. The Snow Queen, one of his longest, uh was written, set, printed, bound, and published in only 16 days, which I find amazing. It's amazing and maybe a little discouraging
2: to yeah. <laughs> probably a lot of writers out there. English translations of the fairy tales started popping up about 10 years after the first Danish volume. Um, even though it's worth noting that just because you know Anderson's stories, just because you've read a translation, I mean, we of course have only read translations, doesn't necessarily mean that you know his words. And that's because a lot of the translations are considered to be pretty bad. One of the early English translations was based not on the original language, but on a German edition. That's never a great way to do a translation. And then other translators just would edit the stories as they saw fit. And I mean, that's one thing. These are fairy tales. They're based on folk tales. They change, and Anderson himself did that. But it's another, if it's a volume of Hans Christian Anderson's stories, and they've been
4: switched around some. Very true. But Anderson shouldn't be mistaken for just the quiet fairy tale author he's often depicted as. I mean, you'll see photos of a seated Anderson surrounded by kids, like he's some sort of father goose almost. But he was intensely interested in fame, both in cultivating it for himself and seeking out artists that he admired, kind of a groupie almost in a way. He was. And that, uh, that drive to do that from his teenage years in Copenhagen only grew with his success. For example, when he was still only known within Denmark, he showed up at Victor Hugo's door.
2: And then later, as his fame grew and he really had more opportunities to meet some of the more famous people in Europe, he encountered Franz Liszt, Balzac, Heinrich Heine, who was one of the few of these people who recognized (laughs) him first. Uh, Schumann, Rossini, Richard Wagner, Dumas Pair, and Fies, and the Grimm brothers, too, which I think, I mean, I would have loved to have seen that encounter. They had, of course, already published a lot of their work a couple decades before. So, uh, Anderson meets the Grimm's, I mean. You think
4: they had like a dance-off or something?
2: <laughs> I don't know. We can imagine some sort of um,
4: like fairy tale contest throw down other famous people he knew he had an actual friendship with dickens but it was cut short when he accepted an invitation to dickens' house and then proceeded to stay for 5 weeks when he finally left dickens put up a placard in the room that said hans anderson slept in this room for 5 weeks which seemed to the family ages and yeah apparently
2: dickens dropped him after that and anderson didn't really know exactly uh, what he had done wrong you know what had happened other invitations came from the Rothschilds, from Prince Albert. I don't think he actually visited Albert and Victoria. He did visit a spa with the King and Queen of Denmark. So, you know, he was, he was circulating in these grand, uh, grand circles. And this fame hungry and celebrity loving aspect of Anderson's personality is really important. And it did last his entire life. I mean, upon his very first success in Denmark, he said, quote, I was now a happy human being. I possessed the soul of a poet and the heart of youth. All houses began to open to me. I flew from circle to circle.
4: In his early 30s, when his work was gaining an international following, he wrote to a friend, quote, "'My name is gradually beginning to shine, and that is the only thing for which I live. I covet honor and glory in the same way as the miser covets gold.'" But for a man who's flying from circle to circle, Anderson didn't have many close relationships at all, did he?
2: No, not really. I mean, Jonas Collin, who we mentioned earlier, was a true friend, and his son Edward became a trusted business manager of Anderson's. And then later in life, too, he made close friendships with a couple connected Jewish families from Copenhagen, the Heinrichs and the Melchiorh. Um They nursed him. They were his companions to the to the very end but he never had a serious relationship he never owned a house he would rent rooms he'd stay with friends like Dickens I mean that gives you a pretty good picture of the Maybe way that's he why would he live stayed so long exactly he just needed a place to crash and just decided to choose Dickens' house but he would form these um, instead of Forming close relationships, he'd get these intense crushes on the daughters and the sisters of friends. And in fact, his most famous crush was another kind of celebrity idolization. It was Jenny Lind, who was a famous singer of the day. She was called the Nightingale. And he would write love letters. He proposed to her. He proposed to other women. But he supposedly entirely avoided sex. And consequently, since 1901, scholars have really investigated Anderson's sexuality a lot and tried to figure out, um, you know, was he even gay, since he was uh, avoiding relationships with women beyond these over-the-top sort of proposals. Um, Another thing to consider, he had a late-life celebrity crush on the dancer Harold Schaaf. But it's likely, and most scholars, I think, believe, that he had no romantic relationships whatsoever.
1: Glow with your best skin. Be confident in your skin.
0: privileges and start earning points toward your next day. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true.
5: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year
4: So despite being one of the best-known authors of his day, he was also very much afraid of not being taken seriously by fellow writers. So it gratified him immensely that in his old age, writers like Thackeray, Ibsen, and Longfellow all really admired his work. On August fourth, 1875, he died of liver cancer in Copenhagen while still receiving visitors to the very end. And since then, his life has been thoroughly researched. His autobiography, The Fairy Tale of My Life, detailed many of the early encounters in Copenhagen. And also an undiscovered memoir came out in the 1920s.
1: He
2: also, of course, left behind a large body of literature, literary works. There's 212 stories we mentioned, six travelogues six novels, and 36 plays. And in addition to that, Anderson wrote about 14 letters a day, most of which are still surviving. Because because of all this writing, this constant output, Edward Cullen accused him of, quote, mad, deplorable productivity and also told him, quote, It is really extraordinarily selfish of you to assume such an interest in you among people.
4: But maybe it's not so crazy, after all. I mean, people have taken a great interest in preserving his work and details of his life. The Odense City Museum, for example, and the H.C. Anderson Center at the University of Southern Denmark have published the letters. And in 1993, the director of the Hans Christian Andersen Center published a day-by-day timeline of his life, which I think... Contains some really interesting points. It does. It, it does
2: contain it's some points. It's very detailed. As you would imagine, a day-by-day timeline would be. But my favorite Anderson collection is actually his paper cuttings. I didn't know that he was such a master of paper cutting until I started looking at pictures at the museum's website. You can find them on the Odense City Museum's website, just like I did. But... Um, They're, they're kind of disturbing in some cases. They'll be beautiful hearts and ballerinas and things that you would maybe expect from this man who told fairy tales and then it would, it'll be a, a, Tower with a man hanging from it. You know, really dark stuff that, again, you might expect from this teller of fairy tales. And I think Dickens' son, too, Henry, who mostly remembered their long term house <laughs> as being kind of a strange man, also remembered this quote, beautiful accomplishment he had. He could just whip out these paper cuts in no time. And, um, yeah, really check them out. They're, they're pretty interesting.
4: And in a way, those simple and, really beautiful, sometimes disturbing cuttings are kind of reminiscent of his stories, too. On Anderson's 70th birthday, the London Daily News wrote of his ability to create life from simple things. And they wrote, it has been given to Hans Anderson to fashion beings, it may almost be said, of a new kind, to breathe life into the toys of childhood and the forms of antique superstition. The tin soldier, the ugly duckling, the mermaid, the match girl, are no less real and living in their way than Othello, or Mr. Pickwick, or Helen of Troy. It seemed a very humble field in which to work, this of nursery legend and childish fantasy. Yet the Danish poet alone, of all who have labored in it, has succeeded in recovering and reproducing the kind of imagination which constructed the old fairy tales.
2: I think that's a nice way to to wrap up, and Um, I mean, to me, somebody like The Little Mermaid is maybe more real than Mr. Pickwick or Helen of Troy. And I, I think part of that is because these stories have become so common in other ways, too. I mean, when I think of The Little Mermaid, I think of... Ariel and Eric getting married with all of the merfolk in attendance and not...
4: And all their little crustacean friends. Exactly,
2: <laughs> yes. Under the sea happiness, not uh, the little mermaid dissolving into sea foam and then mm-hmm. having to work for 300 years to get her soul. But they're worth going back and reading, I think, too, if you haven't checked out one for a while. I've got to figure out if if I have my hands on a good translation now. I never realized that was an issue, but... Um, yeah, I think I'll be, I'll be perusing some Anderson stories. Yeah, it does days. make me
4: curious to go back and check them out.
2: So I think for listener mail today, we might include a few more of our listen while things. I don't know, it seemed appropriate for this fairy tale episode podcast. So we're going to start off with listener Ivy, who listens to the podcast while she walks her retired racing greyhound.
4: And then there's Blair in Montreal, who listens while working at a research library at McGill University. She says, quote, Sometimes it's all I can do not to rush up into the stacks and find more information on the topic.
2: I like the sound of that one. Kate from New York listens on long road trips with her mother to break up the Barry Manilow and the Carpenters
4: music. (laughs) (laughs) And Courtney in Santa Monica listens while she works on animations as a film student. Peter listens while making cricket bats in the U.K., And Heather from California listens while she's grading diamonds, which I love. She writes, quote, if you have ever purchased or received a solitaire, it likely has a report attached to it. That report is what the appraisers use to price the diamond.
2: And Lisa from Sweden, I think this one might have to top everything by default. Lisa from Sweden listened while she gave birth to her third child, specifically to the five historical hoaxes and Orson Welles episodes, (laughs) which I think that destines her child for
4: being a hoaxster, don't you think? I think so. (laughs) Well, I hope not, but (laughs) that's interesting. Emma, a psychology student from New Zealand, listens while running rats through a maze task or running pigeons through their experiment.
2: Angie listens while analyzing historic and prehistoric artifacts in California. Currently, she said that she's helping excavate historic privies and houses within the financial district of downtown
4: San Francisco. And David listens to the podcast while making puppets.
2: All right. Well, that's a perfect one to end on for <laughs> Hans Christian Andersen. So thank you guys for letting us know all the interesting things you do. And uh, if you want to write in to, to let us know what you're up to or to suggest other episodes, we are at HistoryPodcast at com. We're also on Twitter at
4: Missed in History, and we're on Facebook. And if you're having trouble hunting down a good translation of Hans Christian Andersen's works, you might want to maybe... Find a little solace in an article that we have called Other Top Ten to Rare Books. books. Yeah, <laughs> we'll just tease you with that. You can find that by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be
0: sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House Stuff Works staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The How Stuff Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.